Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Himalaya. Welcome back to Think Like an Economist. Over the next several episodes, we're going to talk to some leading economists to hear how they think about and use economics. Today, we've invited Greg Mankiw to join us in a conversation about his work, his time in government, and his advice on how you can use economics to make better decisions. Welcome to this episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Walters. We're here to bring you the super tools of economics to help you transform your life and see the world ever more clearly. Today we're joined by Greg Mankiw. He's perfect for this show because in recent episodes we've been talking about macroeconomics and Greg is the guy who taught me macroeconomics at Harvard. Me too. And Greg isn't just a mentor and a friend and a co-author of mine. He's also one of the world's leading economists. Welcome to Think Like an Economist, Greg. Hi, it's nice to be with you. Look, there's so much we can talk about, but what I really want to begin with is your big contribution. When I told people I was talking to Greg Mankey, they said, oh, you mean one of the leading lights of the new Keynesian revolution. For our listeners, for whom this might sound a bit like code, what is the new Keynesian revolution? That's a great question. John Maynard Keynes was this great economist who did the most important work in the 1930s, gave us a framework for understanding depressions and recessions. And his book called The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money quickly became very controversial in economics and it remains so to this day. It became very popular in the 30s and 40s. And then it came under attack in the 70s where people that sometimes called the new classical economists started attacking some of the premises of Keynesian economics. And that's roughly when I entered the economics scene as a student in the 70s and 80s. And so my early work was trying to put Keynesian economics on a more solid theoretical foundation. And so the big Keynesian insight was that demand is a really big driver of business cycles. What is it the new classicals disagreed with there? You're absolutely right. John Maynard Keynes thought that aggregate demand, the demand for goods and services, was the key driver to understand business cycles. And recessions and depressions were periods of insufficient demand for goods and services and therefore insufficient demand for labor. To get that story to work, you need some wage or price stickiness somewhere in the system. Under classical theory, prices would quickly adjust to any level of demand and restore full employment. And it's that rapidity of adjustment that undermines basic Keynesian conclusions. Now, the old Keynesians didn't mind assuming slow adjustment of wages and prices because that's the way the world looked to them. But that came under significant attack by the new classicals. And so one of the things the new Keynesians wanted to do and this was some of my early research, was trying to help explain why it is that wages and prices would adjust slowly over time rather than instantaneously to restore full employment. 
So don't keep me in suspense, Greg. Why do prices adjust slowly? I mean, if demand falls off for my goods, why don't I just cut my prices right away and bring demand back? Well, that's a good question. I don't think we have a definitive answer. There's a lot of possible explanations out there. Some of them involve the costs of price adjustment. I did a paper early in my career called Small Menu Costs and Large Business Cycles that suggested that relatively small costs of price adjustment, which, which are sometimes called menu costs, can actually help explain fairly large deviations of uh, output from full employment. Now, that's still a controversial thesis. There's other ideas out there. Some people think that wages are not determined by supply and demand, but are determined by norms in the workplace that might adjust slowly over time. So I think there's a lot of different perspectives out there. But I think there's a consensus that sticky wages and prices do kind of make sense as a way of understanding the business cycle. If you think about where we are today, where do you think views are on Keynesianism, our new Keynesianism? Do we believe that prices are sticky? How important is demand for recessions? I think the consensus today is that Keynes was right. When I was in grad school, I think there was a movement away from Keynes and the tide has turned. I mean, in part due to my generation's work on, on, on sticky prices, but in part because the alternatives, the sort of new classical alternatives, sometimes called real business cycles, turned out not to look very attractive. And so economics is always a matter of competing theories. And you know you can't beat a theory without a theory. So as economists started looking at alternative theories of the business cycle, I think the Keynesian approach has become sort of the consensus view these days. And so one of the interesting evolutions I've seen in your own work, Greg, is almost increasing behavioral economics. The young Greg Mankiw was a new Keynesian because of a fairly sophisticated theory about menu costs. And then more recently, you and Ricardo Reese talked instead about attention. I'm not a behavioral economist, but I've been heavily influenced by the behavioral economists in my department, in particular, David Leibson, who's my slightly younger colleague, who's done a lot of work in behavioral economics. And I saw David Leibson give a talk about inattention, uh, in particular, he was thinking about consumers. And I started thinking about the same sort of inattention could perhaps explain the sluggishness of price adjustment, that firms aren't monitoring the macro economy in the same way they're monitoring their own particular market. So if you're a small business, you're going to spend a lot of time focused on the details of your business. The overall macro economy, it's going to have monetary policy and so on, something that may not enter into your decision making. As a result, people may be relatively slow to adjust their price setting to changes in overall aggregate demand. Uh, and you're right, that idea really comes from the, the behavioral economists. And then we try to understand how that could help explain the dynamics of prices and inflation over time. And it's also a distinctly macroeconomic idea in the sense that both sticky prices or sticky information, individuals may not be paying attention. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but if a whole lot of us don't do it at the same time, that can add up to macroeconomic consequences. Oh, that's absolutely right. And there's a lot of sort of synergies between how much attention people pay. So maybe if you're not paying attention, you're not going to change your price. Well, I'm not so eager to change my price if you're my competitor, and therefore I'm not going to pay much attention either. So to me, it's pretty compelling that most people aren't focused on the Federal Reserve. Most people probably don't even know the Federal Reserve is. So it's not surprising that the overall economy is slow to respond to changes in, say, monetary policy or, or other forces that influence overall aggregate demand. So to characterize this big debate, the new classicals saw the economy as a well-oiled machine, and a well-oiled machine goes back to equilibrium and full employment very quickly. And you and many of your collaborators were finding a lot of sand in the gears that were slowing things down, and that eventually causes unemployment. That's exactly right. We were trying to explain some of the frictions that make the economy work less than perfectly, less than ideally as it would in a fully classical world. 
I can remember a talk you gave at a conference almost a decade ago. You were talking about each generation of macroeconomists trying to push the ball of knowledge up the hill, and then some big catastrophe would come along that would slip the ball back to the bottom so the new generation had something to study, something to do. It's a really graphic metaphor. But we did have this huge financial crisis in 2008, which I think really shook our understanding of how the macroeconomy works. The pandemic-based recession is its own beast, which I think there we all have even a, maybe do have a better understanding of exactly what, what happened. But what did we learn from the financial crisis and, and where do you see that ball of macro knowledge today? I think we understood from the financial crisis that financial institutions need to play a larger role in how macroeconomists see things. I mean, in the past, courses in financial institutions were like separate courses for people who want to become bankers, and they were sort of very distinct from macroeconomics. What we learned in 2008 was that when those financial institutions screw up, that can have broader macroeconomic ramifications. I think of sort of financial institutions as kind of like the stagehands at the back of the theater when you're watching a play. Normally, when you're watching a play, you don't really think about the stagehands. People are operating the lights, opening up and closing the curtain and so on. But if they somehow go on strike, you realize, oh my gosh, the play can't go on without them. And that's kind of what happened with financial institutions. Normally, they kind of work well. Macroeconomists can think about macroeconomic aggregates like GDP and interest rates, and we don't need to think about the details of capital requirements in banks. Then once in a while, they screw up, which they did in 2008, and it has broad ramifications. We need to think about it. You know, I teach macroeconomics, and I spend much more time discussing financial institutions than I did in the past. I'm a little confused here, Greg. I thought the Great Depression had a lot to do with the financial crisis. Did economists just forget about that? In part, we do forget things. I think that you're right. Certainly issues that rose in the 1930s faded from time, not only the financial crisis in the 30s, but also things like the zero lower bound on interest rates. My guess is when you guys were in my class, I didn't spend much time thinking about the zero lower bound on interest rates, and probably none of my colleagues teaching this macroeconomic sequence did either. All of a sudden, it's come back in a big way. You didn't. Can I ask you to explain to our listeners, what is the zero lower bound? Because it really matters. Oh, yes. The zero lower bound really does matter. It's the idea that interest rates can't go below zero. Now, maybe they can go a little bit below zero because they have in some European countries. They can't go much below zero. Sometimes people hold the effective lower bound. So it's around zero. And usually interest rates are well above zero. So the fact they can't go much below zero is not much of a constraint on policy. And therefore, we can kind of ignore it. But in the 1930s, interest rates had zero and they have recently, in 2008. What we need to focus on, what's most important, sort of fluctuates over time, depending on what the particular issues of the day are. And um, Betsy posed the question, what did we learn from the financial crisis? Well, we then had, after that once in a century shock, we just had another once in a century shock 10 years later. What have we learned from the economics of the pandemic? Well, well I think unusual events are not as unusual as, as we think. The way a statistician would put it is, you know, distributions have fat tails, meaning that you know, extreme events are much more likely than you would normally think they are. I think that, that's an important thing for people to remember, that the world is vastly more uncertain. And when some terrible, unusual thing happens, there'll be some people saying, oh, yeah, I was, I've been thinking about that. So I, was always, I was warning that that could be more likely. Now, even the pandemic, Bill Gates, for example, has been talking about you know, pandemic risk for years. And I'm sure there's other things that we're not thinking about now. You know, the, what's the possibility an asteroid is going to come and land in the middle of Manhattan? You know, no, nobody's thinking about that now, but it could happen. So there's all sorts of sort of very unusual events that will hit us in the future and we will be surprised at them because they'll be 
unique in their nature, just like this pandemic is unique. It's very much different from other business cycles. And 2008 was different from other business cycles. Um, this famous quote actually from Robert Lucas many years ago, the famous new classical economist, who said all business cycles are alike. This was the, was the quote. I think one thing we've learned is that they're not. Right. <laughs> it strikes me as the exactly <laughs> wrong thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I think we've, every business cycle sort of has unique features and we have to come to grips with it. Like this pandemic business cycle, it's the first business cycle I know of that's being effectively driven by microbiology. Right. From the beginning, I kind of knew that the end was going to be determined not by macro policy. It's been determined by the how, how the microbiologists make progress against the virus, whether it's testing or vaccines or something. But something to have the microbiology to get our economy going again. Even in the the labor space there, it's our first service sector-led recession. And it's not clear to me that a service sector-led recession is going to end or have a transition that looks the same as a goods-producing sector-led recession, because it's different kinds of jobs with different kinds of skills. And I don't think we've really fully started to grapple with what that's going to mean for workers in the next year or two as we try to get them back into their jobs. You know, I think that's exactly right. It's a very different kind of recession from the labor market perspective. Another way which is different from the labor market perspective is the huge rise in unemployment was basically driven by temporary layoffs. So permanent job losses has crept up a little bit, but they haven't, hasn't crept up a lot. Permanent job losses have not reached the level they did in the 2008 recession. That is potentially hopeful. If people think they have jobs waiting for them and if they're right, And that means we could perhaps recover quickly. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. So, Greg, you said the big lesson from the pandemic is distributions have fat tails, or to put it more graphically, for our listeners, they should expect to be surprised. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is help our listeners take these big macroeconomic ideas and think about how they apply to their own lives. So if distributions have fat tails, how should we make different decisions in our everyday lives knowing that? I think be prepared for a lot of uncertainty. One thing you can do with that is precautionary saving, put more money aside for when these extreme events happen. We have the financial wherewithal to handle them. The other is to be incredibly well diversified. We know very little about actually how to invest as economists. But the one thing we absolutely do know is that diversification is the only sort of free lunch out there. I encourage everybody who's investing their own money to be maximally diversified. That means across many different stocks, across many different countries, across many different asset classes, because you never really know you know, which particular asset class is going to pay off. I know there are people out there who sort of make big bets on a small number of things. Um, 
I think those people are either much, much smarter than I am or much, much more foolish than I am. <laughs> so there are so few people out there who can do that, who can beat the market. You know, Warren Buffett's probably one of them. But for most people, they're probably not as smart as they think, especially about predicting the future. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're probably just better off being as diversified as they can be. So when you think about where we are with macroeconomics today, a natural question is where we are with macroeconomic policy. And you have advised President Bush as a the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. You've given a lot of policy advice over your career. Do you think we're in a good place to give that kind of advice today? And, and what did you learn from your experience in giving advice to policymakers? You know, actually, the one Robert Lucas quote that I completely agree with, the one of his essays, he said, as an advice giving profession, we're way over our heads. <laughs> and I kind of agree with that. I think it's very hard to give macroeconomic advice because there's so much we don't know. So, for example, debt to GDP ratios are, are rising and very high. How high can they go before we, we run into problems? I don't think we have good answers to that question. Well, what conditions have to arise before inflation becomes a problem? I think, again, different macroeconomists have different opinions about that. So I think there's lots of macroeconomic things we don't know the answer to. I think a large dose of humility is probably called for. Do you think we do a good job at communicating our humility? I think some people aren't as humble as they should be, and they do a pretty good job of communicating their lack of humility. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should be more humble. The problem is humble doesn't sell well. You know, if you want to write op-eds, it's much easier to have a strong opinion and argue strongly for it than say, well, it could be this, it could be that. Who knows? We're not really sure. Here's my best guess. That doesn't sell well in op-ed pages. So the popular debate tends to focus on economists that are insufficiently humble. Uh, I try not to fall into that trap, but I'm sure I do. I do too when I write op-eds. I'm struck that humility is so important. I agree with you. Do we educate young economists in humility? (laughs) Probably not. I mean, we probably don't. It's maybe perhaps a more of a personal characteristic that can be best taught, not explicitly, but implicitly by example. Mm-hmm. The economists I, I admire tend to be more humble. I was a student of uh, Stanley Fisher's. He was my PhD dissertation advisor. And I think Stan was a great career as a professor and as an economic policymaker, being vice chair of the, the Fed most recently. He was very good at applying economic knowledge, but also not overstating what he knew. So Greg, I love this point about humility, but also about how it doesn't sell. So I was just going to tell you, in my experience, I actually only got yelled at once by the president's chief of staff. And it was because it was the only time I said, well, on the one hand, and on the other hand, he was like, you need to tell us what to do. And I was like, but, (laughs) and so there is this balance, right, between humility, like I wanted to say I didn't have certainty, and that also tempered my advice. But at the same time, I do see a lot of economists get into trouble for falling into the trap I fell into, which is refusing to fall down on one side. So I was just wondering if you must have wrestled with this. Yeah, when I was working for George Bush, I never felt like I couldn't express uncertainty. I was part of an economic team that worked together really well. So, you know, I was working with Steve Friedman, who was head of the National Economic Council, and John Snow, who was Secretary of Treasury. We all got along really well. We often saw things really well. So with them, I could sort of say, oh, I'm uncertain. We'd eventually come up with a consensus recommendation and that would go to the president. So I never felt like I was ever in a position to have to suppress what I thought. 
And indeed, you know, one of the things but this is somewhat, only somewhat related to what you asked, which is you know, what happens if you're working for a president and you happen to disagree with the president? You happen to think it's wrong and take another position. Whenever I would get a question from a reporter, what I would always say is, the president thinks that. And then I express the president's view. And I just wouldn't tell them my view. And interestingly, the reporters never really followed up with a question because they didn't honestly care about my view. They only cared about the president's view. So that brings us to this idea of just communicating to that broader public. And I followed that rule as well, which is, you know, you're representing the decisions of the president. And I saw economists not having as much sway in policymaking as maybe they even should have, which is why I think like this thing about humility is a little complex, right? We see a lot of arrogant economists. That stereotype is for real. But then I'd like to see economists have even sort of more sway in terms of helping people understand how incentives shape the behavior. Oh, I couldn't agree more. The problem is, is that in a policy context, often the person who acts as if they have complete certainty, their message will get across better. I think that's unhealthy. Greg, we want to know what's the secret sauce? Our listeners have just learned some economics and they want to be persuasive. How do they do it? Well, I think it's helpful to keep your audience in mind. So when I write op-eds, I, I usually try to write in a way that's going to, if not persuade someone who disagrees with me, at least give them pause and make them a little less certain. So I'm, not, I'm never writing an op-ed to try to basically solidify the base of people who already agree with me. That's not an interesting way to write an op-ed. So I try to think of, okay, who's a reasonable person who doesn't agree with me? What arguments might they find sympathetic? How do you put those terms? So thinking about your audience all the time when, when you're writing, I think is tremendously important. Actually, I have a slight advantage. I'm, I'm sort of, my, my politics is sort of center right. And I'm at a university that's center left. So basically surrounded by people who disagree with me. That's a great advantage because you know how the people who don't agree with you think. And trying to get inside somebody else's mind is often very difficult. I teach this freshman seminar. And I once had a student who was from Santa Monica, very liberal, very far to the left. At the end of the seminar, he said his favorite book we read was Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. <laughs> and I said, well, why was that your favorite book? And he said, well, I don't agree with it at all, but, I, but these are the arguments I have to figure out how to argue against. And I thought that was a very insightful <laughs> insight because understanding people you disagree with is much harder and sometimes more important than understanding people you agree with. One of my favorite things about being in a seminar room with you, Greg, is we'll be in a room and there'll be many great economists arguing very technical fine points of a particular seminar paper or a projection or a forecast. And inevitably, when you put your hand up and interject, you'll use what looks to me like Economics 101, the sort of lessons we've been talking about on this podcast that you have a deep understanding of the fundamentals and you'll reinsert them back into the conversation. Where does that come from? Well, you know, my favorite courses when I took economics as a student was the introductory micro and macro courses. I feel like I learned so much there. And I felt, looking back at my own education, I feel like all the more advanced courses were just reiterating the same ideas I learned in basic economics and adding more math and more rigor, more precision. But basically all the core economics was really there in first year economics. So I think everything can be couched in those terms. I also always, whenever I see an economic idea, I always want to put it in the big picture. Like, how is this going to fit in from the big picture? I'm less interested in the details, which I'm assuming the author is getting right. I'm more said, so, okay, why should I care about this? And I think too many economic papers are written in a way that the author assumes that everybody cares about the subject 
as much as he does or she does, and often the audience doesn't. And so trying to get, bring everything back to Econ 101 is a way of saying, okay, why is this important? And if you can't put it into 101 terms, it may not be important. Let's switch gears a little bit. You know, a lot of our listeners are from all over the globe, and an increasing part of the globe is China. And so I was wondering, where do you see globalization going? Maybe thinking a little bit about China's impact on the world, but we're at a time where it does seem like a lot of countries are trying to retreat from globalization. And so I'm wondering where you think it's going. Globalization has had a hard few years, and people on both the right and the left, I don't mean the sort of center right, center left, I mean the far right and far left, have been very skeptical about globalization. And that's what includes like Donald Trump on the far right and Bernie Sanders on the far left. And you see right now there's, there's really not a consensus to, to sort of push forward in a way that was true in the past. So I think of sort of moderates and people like, you know, George Bush, both George Bushes who pushed for more global free trade and uh, Bill Clinton who signed, finally signed NAFTA into law and Barack Obama who negotiated TPP, which unfortunately did not get passed into law. So there used to be that old consensus between the center left and center right, and that's now been sort of hijacked. Now it's the populist extremes that have sort of taken hold in the popular imagination, and we're sort of in an anti-globalization phase. I personally think it's very unfortunate, because I actually think actually globalization is good for humanity. And when I think of globalization, I'm thinking about both trading goods and movement of people through immigration. I think they're both sort of basically very positive forces for the human race worldwide. And so I think it's very unfortunate that we've gone into this slightly xenophobic phase. I don't know how it's going to all end up, but um, at, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I still sort of preach the virtues of, of trade. It's certainly true that trade creates winners and losers. It's never been true that when we open up to trade, absolutely everybody wins. There's always going to be some people adversely affected. But I think on net, trade is positive sum. And if we have the right social safety net to help the people who do get hurt, then it's overall a positive force for society. So then let me ask you to put your communicator hat on. How would you make the case for globalization? It's clear you're in favor. It's clear a lot of people haven't heard those arguments or they haven't landed. So what's Greg Mankey's case? Well, when I teach basic economics, I make comparative advantage, which is the you know, Ricardo's theory of, of why trade can make both paid trading parties better off. I make that a very center of the course. It's not something that I will leave to the end of the course. That's sort of an extra topic. I think it's really central to economics. Is the basic theory of comparative advantage explains not only why we trade with other countries, it's why we trade with other people. It's why we, 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 know we don't grow our own food and make our own clothes. Right? We have trade among people within a country. It's really based on the same forces as trade among countries. There's a great book uh, for the general public called The Myth of the Rational Voter by Brian Kaplan. And Brian Kaplan, in this book, goes through a variety of biases that uninformed people but economics tend to have. And one of them is an anti-market bias. They're more skeptical about markets allocations than, than economists are. And the other is an anti-foreign bias. Uh, they tend to be skeptical about foreigners. I think both of those biases are true, and I think both of the biases are very unfortunate. The anti-foreign bias, if you know, let me put my, my amateur sociobiology hat on for, for a minute. The anti-foreign bias, I think, comes from the deep evolution of the, of the humankind. That is, if you think of a man evolved in the savanna somewhere, if you saw a bunch of people they didn't recognize coming over the horizon, they probably weren't coming over to engage in mutually advantageous gains from trade. They were probably coming over the border just to steal your food or something. So we didn't evolve in an environment where trade with strangers could be mutually beneficial. But in a world system that has the rule of law, 
it can be a win-win. Greg, I was just going to say, I've been thinking a lot about anti-forum bias in, in a somewhat different, much more narrow sense, which is just my eight-year-old is talking a lot about how kids treat other kids that they think are different. I think Justin said to our, our son yesterday, nothing important in the world has ever been invented by someone who wasn't seen as different. <laughs> but there's David Ricardo in the background, which is we learn more and do better and trade more with people who are more different than us. Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. So, so the idea that we only want to trade with Canada, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so trading with China, which is vastly different from us, or the, or the developing world, like Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, that, that's where, where the gains from trade really are. All right. This is the fun bit, Craig. We've called our podcast Think Like an Economist because we think that learning how to think like an economist really helps you see the world more clearly. And I get to say that because I was a student of yours who learned to think like an economist from you. So can you tell us just a little bit about what it really means to you to think like an economist? I think it's very hard to say what thinking like an economist is. Economists have a lot of small models of the economy that are basically logical representations of how we think people interact. And that we try to do it in a mathematical way, but in a way that sort of puts emotion and irrational thoughts and some subjective thoughts to the side. So we try to think as objectively as we can about human interactions. It means developing theories. It means looking at evidence and letting the theories evolve in response to that evidence. And for those of our listeners who need persuading, why do you think it's valuable to think like an economist? Well, I, I always think of economics from the standpoint of public policy, because I think as a voter, I can think better about what are good policies and bad policies. But even if you don't think about it, I'm interested in public policy. I think you, if you're understanding a little of the economics, you can make better decisions in your own life. The idea of some costs uh, as being irrelevant. Once you sort of recognize that, you say, aha, you know, I've maybe made some irrational choices in my own life. I should be ignoring some costs. If you understand a little bit of finance, the idea of diversification, holding the market portfolio makes sense. To a non-economist holding index funds that holds, holds all the stocks, regardless of whether it's a good company or a bad company, it seems kind of crazy. Once you understand a little bit of finance, you understand, hey, that's kind of a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it does help in personal decision-making as well as thinking broadly about public policy. Terrific. Greg, thank you so much for talking with us today on Think Like an Economist. I think you brought a lot of really important insights for our listeners. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Justin and Betsy. And thanks for all you've done to teach both of us, mate. (laughs) 